welcome to the Amplify podcast, brought to you by the Rise Collective, an organization that champions young creatives and builds collectives at the forefront of social change. This series was created by the next generation of creative leaders and change makers. From exploring indigenous wisdom to entire worlds reimagined, we invite you on a journey into our emerging futures. Welcome and hello. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Amplify podcast. I'm your host, Geneva. Our theme for the podcast this year is Emerging Futures, something we explored in my first episode on sustainability, which I hope you've already listened to. If not, please do. It features amazing music from across oceans and plenty of food for thought on how we can approach and understand climate change from the perspective of art and people on the front line. Find it on the Rise Collective socials where you can listen to all of the other host episodes too. Now on today's episode, we're looking into the topic of abolition. We're extremely lucky to hear from activist and writer Shanice McBean ahead of the release of Abolition Revolution, which is the new book she has co-authored with Avia Sarah Day. We'll also be treated to poetry by the phenomenal spoken word artist Chemistry. So to kick us off and for some background on the topic of abolition, I'm going to read the overview from the publisher's Pluto Press. George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis triggered abolitionist shockwaves. Calls to defund the police found receptive ears around the world. And shortly after, Sarah Everard's murder by a serving police officer compounded these calls in Britain. But to abolish the interlocking systems of police, prison and border power, we must confront the legacy of empire. Abolition Revolution is a historical, theoretical and practical guide to revolutionary abolitionist politics in Britain. The authors trace the evolution of policing and criminalisation from their colonial roots to their contemporary expression, as found in prevent and drug laws targeting black communities. They also draw out a rich history of grassroots resistance, from the founding of the Notting Hill Carnival in 1959, to transformative responses to repressive community policing today. With a forceful critique of carceral feminism, alongside an exposition of how these systems fail as a response to social dynamics such as crime, The book offers a compelling and grounded vision for abolition that takes us away from punitivity from above and into community-based forms of accountability from below. All right, so without further ado, let's hear from Shanice. So, hello Shanice, (laughs) again. Hey! (laughs) It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, Thank you so, so much for your time, giving up your time to be here with me. Um, if you would like to introduce yourself for our listeners, that would be amazing. Yeah, um, I'm Shanice. Um, I guess part of the reason why I've been invited is because I'm the co-author of um, Abolition Revolution, um, who I wrote with a good friend of mine and comrade, Via Day. Um, so yeah, I've uh, well, Via and I met in Sisters Uncut, and I think Sisters Uncut and our experience in that organisation um, definitely kind of like sets the background to a lot of stuff in the book. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's me. Yes. So as you say, I wanted to speak to you after the um, the publication of Abolition Revolution. I think it's so timely that's coming out now. Um, and it's so wonderful to, as you say, have um, this area being 
examined by people who have really very much had their feet on the ground and have been ex- had experience with people who are affected by this in their daily lives. Um, so I would really love um, if you could kind of give some background because obviously n- not everyone might know about the cultural impact of Sisters Uncut um, and just how much has gone into that and how it yeah. I think has really set um, the stage for examining what abolition can look like in in our like structures and groups that we organize as a community for sure um so i guess the first thing to say is that there's often this conception of abolition as a very u.s centric movement Mm. and definitely you know the u.s has contributed you know heavily to the abolitionist tradition from slavery and the abolition of slavery all the way up until you know concepts like the prison industrial complex but it's really important i think just to begin answering your question to talk about the fact that abolition has a very long tradition in the uk as well um from you know prison protests and riots all the way up until movements of the past few years black lives matter protests of 2020 and then the kill the bill watch movements of 2021 So I guess where Sisters Uncut comes into that is part of that kind of bigger picture of lots of different groups and collectives kind of flying the flag and um, lighting the fire for abolition in in the UK. But our particular contribution, I think, starts in 2014 when Sisters Uncut was founded. And it was initially founded as an organisation to combat and fight against cuts to domestic violence services. But I think quite quickly we started to realise that the state and the government weren't just bystanders in violence against women, but were actively perpetrating that violence. And that was through different institutions. So, for example, you know, the welfare state and benefits office, but it was also through housing legislation and relevant to abolition. It was also through the policing system, the prison system and borders. So to give some specific examples, you know, 50% of police forces in the UK have a policy of arresting um, people who come forward with allegations of serious violence, including domestic and sexual violence, if they suspect that their immigration status might be um, unsettled or unstable. So that just goes to show you like how grim um, the state can be, not just as a bystander, but a perpetrator of violence. And I think a lot of people in Sisters Uncut over the years, you know, and their experience in the domestic and sexual violence sectors was quite formative. You know, more and more people in the collective were seeing women that they were supporting, um, supporting against perpetrators of sexual and domestic violence, getting criminalised themselves. And I think the story of Sarah Reed was really formative. Sarah Reed had two moments of contact with um, the police and prison system. And that's when a police officer in 2012 repeatedly beat her across the head. And then it was also when she defended herself against sexual violence when she was detained and then was arrested and sent to Holloway Prison. So I guess to kind of take us to the present day, those experiences brought us from an anti-austerity politics to progressively a more anti-state, anti-state violence, abolitionist politics. So then that lands us in 2021, where we get the murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Metropolitan Police Officer, Wayne Cousins. 
And I think that um, seven year period where we had been developing our abolitionist politics really meant we were ready to respond to that political moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there was a real hole that was filled by Sister Zankar around what happened with what Wayne Cousins did. Um, I don't mean to send to him, but that was just how it came out of my mind. But because it is, as you say, it's the fact that it was someone who is in this system, which is supposed to protect us. That's what the everyday person is led to believe. Yeah. Um, so that's wonderful history. Thank you so much for that and for doing it so succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, it's interesting looking at Sisters Uncut in this way because, you know, when you're talking about where it started with the idea of domestic violence and all of these, the brutality of it all in these systems, it's hard for me to to try and explain this in a way that doesn't seem really twee, I think, because so many people yeah. um, want to disregard, I think, some of the ideas that I like to put out in a sense about um emotions and feelings and all this kind of thing and um, obviously it's because it's so gendered and it's a really it's a hot topic but for me I think I mentioned this to you before as well that I think a real important element of um looking at carcerality which is a, a term that's used a lot in in these conversations for the everyday person it, it really just means um relating to what a, like a carceral system is I, I think for me that's what yeah. it means it's like you know the idea of um how you punish someone for something which is perceived as a crime which in itself is a really interesting side topic because it's the, this idea of crime versus harm maybe we'll yeah. get into that if we have time <laughs> <laughs> um but for me something I was thinking about which again, as I say, was brought to my mind when we're talking about things like domestic violence and how, you know, those people who are so um, in need of emotional support and just, you know, a space to be held or, or the opposite of what basically you're explaining often happens in these systems. Um, it just is not given. And I think yeah. for me, I was thinking about the idea of abolition um, and the idea of care, because I think the politics of care is something that has been on um, in in academia. It's something that I think has been picked up, is picking up steam for a while, mm. um, along with kind of philosophical debates about like ethics and and how people have a right to live um, or certain have a right to a certain way of life. Um, and this is something that I picked up in the podcast you did with Verso when you mentioned. Um, let me get it up. Who or what does a system serve? Um, and alternatives to systems, positing alternatives to systems and, and thinking about them means yeah. asking what our bodies need to thrive and not just survive. Um, and what are our bodies and what we need from each other, perhaps to not commit violence to ourselves and each other is what I was kind of getting from that um, thread, that thread, that line of thought that you were putting across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it just, yeah, I was looking again at, so last month, um, the colonial post-colonial decolonial working group um held a workshop last month on the topic of refusing carcerality and I think it's interesting that within that they were also talking about um the idea of care I think because they were saying I'm just gonna get up the quote again how the growing refusal of carceral logics via industrial action demonstrations community organizing and solidarity work across spaces of love and care 
it's something that's brought up. So again, it, I was I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised to see that because it just again it aligned with what I was thinking about. Um, when you think they say when you examine the genealogy, so you know the origins of casuality, it has to always be with the aim of imagining a different liberated future, which again really ties up nicely because the umbrella theme of this podcast is imagine futures. So I'm just thinking about all of this because there's a question that the CPD group talks about in the sense that it's a global issue, carcerality, um, but you can't really ignore how our dominant culture and everyday life shapes and structures imprisonment, policing and punishment and vice versa. Um, so just really, again, I was thinking recently, I saw this <laughs> this clip from Dr. Gabor Mate talking about how sensitive people in our dominant culture don't fare so well because you know nowadays you would be you criticized for being like a soft touch or weak or effeminate yeah. which again speaks to the gender dimensions of that um but in traditional cultures they were healers and shamans people who were i think necessarily more forgiving and understanding of people's struggles so i'm saying all of this <laughs> to say that i think there is a real um a space in these conversations about abolition and refusing carcerality to think about what it means in investigating in ourselves how we act and live out um our everyday life how we navigate the world how we treat each other yeah definitely i think that there's lots to explore there so i'll start with the fact that you know people often say and i think they're right that abolition as a word has a definition and it often is um understood to be a word of destruction we're going to abolish we're going to get rid of but i think what is really key um, is that actually abolition is about renewal, it's about creation, it's about saying to ourselves, look, these systems aren't working, what can we build in their place? What can we do differently? What kind of world do we want to live in? And so then that raises the question, well, what is going to structure that future? What's going to be the principles um, that defines what that future, what that new word, world looks like? And I think mm. the word that you use, care, as opposed to harm, is what's going to structure that that future. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we look at the society that we live in now, it's full of harm, it's full of violence, it's full of pain, and the supposed mechanisms that we have to prevent that from happening, so, you know, the police or the care system or, you know, mental health support, whatever it is, the welfare state, aren't working. And we know they're not working um, because mental health, um, you know, conditions are on the rise. Two women a week are murdered by a, a current or ex-partner. Um, you know, the prison population is not decreasing, it's increasing. Harm and violence and war and catastrophe are rife across, across the globe. So we know that these systems to prevent harm aren't working. Um, so when it comes to abolition, it's very much that, that question of renewal. Well, what's, what are we going to put in its place? And I think thinking, you know, back to previous societies, often indigenous societies that did things differently and had modes of social accountability that um, prioritised people and prioritised relationships between individuals and prioritised community over profit can be quite an ins inspirational um, way of approaching the question. But I also think there's a very um, material question that we have to ask, which is, well, what causes harm and violence 
in the first place? And that's a huge question. And there are lots of people doing incredible sociological and scientific and political and um, all sorts of other work to answer that question. But I think fundamentally, um, harm has social origins. It has political origins, origins. It has economic origins. We can trace most crimes, and I put crimes in quotation marks that take place, to social factors, whether that might be economic or political, or about how we relate to each other. So I think there's definitely um, at the core of abolition is this question of, well, what do we do new? What kind of world do we want to build? And I think the, the intervention into that conversation, the abolition revolution, the book tries to make is one that um, appreciates the concept of care and mm -hmm. communal justice and how we relate to each other individually. But I think its core argument also understands that the world that we live in shapes how we relate to each other and how we do care and how we exist in community. And we can't hope to revolutionize those relationships without revolutionizing the world around us. And that's why our book very much centers the idea of like an anti-capitalist, working class, global, proletarian revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that and it's that 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 kind of revolutionary process that will foreground those new relationships and those new structures that we want to build. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, as you say, they both you can't look at one side of it without the other because yeah. um, like it was mentioned on, like I said, the CPD. Um, website um it's the public and the private in this sense they they inform one another to in such a complicated way um but I do really appreciate um you explaining how the book has has addressed that um and yeah. something else that I think would be great to hear about more from the book is um we were talking about Francoise Verge earlier and she uh gave a great review of the book saying that um, yours Navia's analysis of the criminalization of black and Asian youth, um, a carceral white bourgeois feminism, gentrification and police and state violence makes for a central reading. Um, and I think it is it's so important to think about all those different factors in this conversation. Yeah. Um, so anything you could offer that kind of expands on the idea of those different factors that are at play specifically in the UK context would be fantastic and let me know if you want me to repeat that quote again yeah so I think what that quote is actually getting at is and and this is one of the core arguments of the book is understanding these institutions of violence so police prisons and borders um as a, me a, a means of social control so let's take policing for example you know there's often this mythological understanding of police um, being founded in the throes of Victorian crime sprees. And the, the, the goal was to create this benevolent principled force that would protect people from themselves. And actually, the reality is when police were formed in 1829, it was actually as a response to the industrial working class flexing its muscles and the fact that the ruling class was scared that um, some kind of like working class revolution was about to take place. You know, they had the anti-slavery movement, anti-colonial mm. movements in the colonies, China bash against the doors of empire at the same time as, you know, strikes and sabotage and direct action and mass demonstrations taking place on the mainland. 
So the very fa- the very formation of the police was about social control. And if you look at prisons as well, you know, spikes in the growth of prison systems often come at points of crisis. And this is the case now, you know, the government are building more and more prisons. And if you read their own literature, this isn't as a, this, they're not building more prisons as a result of there being more bad people in quotation marks or more crime. They're building more prisons because they're employing more police officers and they're employing more police officers because they are whittling down through, you know, punitive laws like the Police Crime Sentencing of Courts Act. And they're, you know, battering uh, trade unions through legislation that makes it harder to organize. And so social control mechanisms like policing that prevent people from fighting back, whether that's fighting back in the workplace or on the streets or fighting back against capitalism, you know, by um, committing so-called crimes of survival, um, it becomes more and more important to control and have, you know, mechanisms to prevent those things from happening and to control them. And similarly with borders, um, you know, Sivanandan, who is, you know, a huge influence on the book, on both Avira and myself, talked at length and had lengthy analysis of the way in which the immigration acts that came in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s weren't weren't about inviting, um, you know, hard workers from the colonies into the country out of some liberal triumphalism, but it was actually about controlling um, the decline of empire and ensuring the profits of capitalism on the mainland. So again, we're getting these systems of violence and control being used to protect and prop up the system and namely capitalism. Um, so I think what 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 Francois was getting at with that quote, and I'm obviously really ing- grateful for the endorsement, and what the book analyzes is the way in which um, these myths that we're told, the police protect you, we need to put bad people in prison, we need to stop you know, people coming here and taking our resources, don't actually shape up to the reality of what these institutions are about. And what these institutions are about is protecting the system as it is, protecting the flow of capital from uh, the global poor to the rich and ensuring the continuation and the continuing survival of the ruling class. That's That's what connects these these systems of, of, of coercion and control. And so, you know, when we're talking about things like race and gentrification, even to things like, you know, housing legislation, austerity, all of these things um, are connected. Um, and they're connected because in one way or another, they all uh, are a part of the story of how capitalism reproduces itself and how capitalism protects itself from a more equitable, um, fair, and communal economic system ushering itself into reality. In our next segment, Shanice is going to share some texts that she's chosen that have influenced her politics and organising. And before that, I'm going to play some spoken word now from Kemmer, which I think fits in nicely with the themes that are going to come up. So here we go. This is Power and Silence from Chemistry. How long can we shout for change? Is our power louder in silence? 
Not talking the type of apathy that breeds hate. Conformity and compliance. Former thoughts in alliance to break down barriers, share love and guidance and dethrone tyrants. I'm tired. Nowadays I feel the growing tug on my being to resort to healing through violence. Is there healing through violence? These wounds are deep, fam. Craters of colonialism carved into this spinning rock and called a map. The alien with no land, labelled an object of colour that's cornered and collared and called black, stand up or fall back. Explore the inner and outer universe, knowing the ancestors talk back and see hope for the future with every ink blot that stains the page of the Rorschach. The future is fertile. If we continue to nourish minds, feed souls, remove limitations and ego, we are the people. Come join us. Stare into the sea of hope and feel connected. There is power within you, you just have to learn to express it. Blessings. At this point, I thought it might also be nice, um, if you do have any, we spoke about some like excerpts of text. Um, yeah. Obviously, a lot of the theoretical grounding that you've mentioned there is really significant and, and important, I think, for listeners to understand a bit deeper, perhaps. Um, was there anything that you wanted to share that relates to like, Afro-Marxism or the kind of themes that you've mentioned? Yeah, so I've got two bits of text that I want to share if that's okay and it's yeah, from great. it's from two people who have been really um I guess inspirational influential on in my work and my thinking and activism in, in different ways um so the first is Stuart Hall and this is from his kind of you know seminal big text that he did with a bunch of other great people um called Policing the Crisis and this book is timeless it's just always relevant you know no analysis is ever perfect but the framework I think he provides is 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 just timeless and I think this text summarizes it so they say the examination of the role of the media the judiciary and the police undertaken in these chapters points to the social rather than the strictly legal or statistical nature of the kind of crime under discussion here which produces different sorts of response from within the state. Once this point has been grasped, it's difficult to continue to consider the agencies of public significance and control, like the police, the courts and the media, as if they were passive reactors to immediate, simple and clear-cut crime situations. These agencies must be understood as actively and continuously part of the whole process to which also they are reacting. So he goes on to say, they are active in defining situations, in selecting targets, initiating campaigns, in structuring these campaigns, in selectively signifying their actions to the public at large, in legitimating their actions through the accounts of situations which they produce. So he, he concludes, they do not simply respond to moral panics, they form part of the circle out of which moral panics develop. So just to kind of, it's a lot of kind of text and to be, to be honest, sometimes police in the crisis is quite dense to read. So um, to kind of, I guess why I find that so significant is what he's saying is that crime doesn't just exist as this um, 
objective reality. And all the police and courts and media are doing is they are just passive observers of an objective reality. So we're getting into the kind of the philosophy of epistemology here. But anyway, so what he means is that actually the police, the courts and the media participate in creating crime. And in policing the crisis, they do that specifically through manipulating statistics, manipulating narratives and manipulating moral panic around the mugging crisis that, in fact, if you actually look at the statistical like data, wasn't a mugging crisis, but was a crisis created out of manipulation of kind of data and creating mm. hype around um, crimes that were taking place, but that were being manipulated in order to present this, this kind of illusion of a panic. And the reason why they'd want to do that is so that they can then solve that panic and be seen to be solving the problem. And you get a similar thing playing out around knife crime. And so Avira and I did a bit of a deep dive into knife crime statistics and were quite surprised to find, and you wouldn't believe this given the hype in the media around knife crime, um, that for several years, knife crime was decreasing until around 2018, where it reached a peak. And then since then, it's been decreasing again. And the levels of knife crime that we had in 2021 were no different to what they were in around 2011. And in fact, what has doubled in the past 10 years um, is sexual violence and sexual assaults involving a knife have more than doubled in that same time period. We looked up um, how many media articles we could find about the doubling of sexual violence and in, uh, crimes involving a knife, and we could only find two in 2021. Compare that to the swathe of articles day after day after day that we could find around this idea of gang violence and gang murders in London. So that really is insightful because, of course, you know, these things do happen and they are a problem and we need to find solutions to them. But the key thing is the way in which that data is manipulated tells us a story about, you know, uh, what policing really is. Mm. And I guess I'll just like kind of sum up this point by saying that actually there are solutions to things like knife crime. And if, if you look at Glasgow, for example, um, they took a public health approach to knife crime where instead of immediately involving the criminal justice system, they gave people opportunities and routes out of crime through education, training, um, mental health support, housing support, employment support, and also intervention in family dynamics that can then um, you know, be the precursor to street violence. And they saw a decrease in, in knife incidents. Compare and contrast that to London, you know, where we're fed this narrative about stop and search and about, um, you know, the targeting of particular communities like Tottenham and Brixton and, you know, working class areas. And we're told over and over again that these things are meant to be the solution to knife crime. And yet it has no impact. So what that tells us is actually that stop and search, the harassment of our communities, you know, the siege that the police put our communities under isn't about keeping us safe because it doesn't have the results to back it up. But what it is about is social control, maintaining social hierarchies, making sure people like me and you know 
that we can't step out of line and we better stay in our place. That's what it's about. Because we actually have examples of how we can solve these things and how we can reduce the harm. But that's not what the state actually goes for. So that tells us something about what their motivations are. And it tells us about how the state manufactures and manipulates crime and crime statistics to push a narrative. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. And I think for me, with my own experience, um, I've not been on this earth that long, <laughs> but from what I've seen and and the spaces that I've been privileged to be in, I have been in a newsroom. I worked in one for a year. Um, I've been in in like academic spaces. I was lucky enough to go to university. And um, you really do see these things play out with just, yeah. I, I'm, I bring up university to say that you know, that was the only way I was lucky enough to have a chance to start critically analyzing the world that's presented in front of you. Um, because as you say, it's one that is forged, it's created, it's um, carefully crafted in the benefits and interests of a few. Yeah. Um, and so I think the three, for me, the main things to pull out from that really wonderful and insightful um, passage that you read and then you went on to explain, thank you so much for that, um, is that the idea that there are um, systems and forces at play that have um, a monopoly on power to create ideas of crime and as you say control people in that way so yeah. that's something that really needs to be um thought about deeply by the everyday people who are being um presented that narrative um the second element i think is the idea about um public health approaches many people know are so valuable um as we've seen in um recreational drug use across the world public health approaches um, I think personally, the reason I think they are so effective is it brings us back to the conversation we were having before about care and how we yeah. see each other as individuals and humans who need support and solidarity um, and just a bit of help sometimes because we are imperfect. Exactly. Um, and it, I think it, you do need to be, you need to have a reframing of your mind because of the, as you said, the narratives that we are, f are given from day one. Um, to to rethink and think, okay, what what's gone wrong in that person's life um, that these things have started to happen? What can we do to support them as much as we can, or try a different way? Um, and I think I, what can be useful here is um, I mentioned to you before the Care Collective, and they released a book called the Care Manifesto. So people can find this online if they're read if they're listening to this podcast and they're interested in in these thought processes. Um, they talk about abolitionist feminism and how it's useful in their analyses. And they say, you know, there is copious evidence that democratically controlled, collectively resourced public services produce greater satisfaction than profit-seeking commercialized services. So I think that relates a bit to what you've been discussing so far in terms of the systems that we're having that are not fit for purpose. They significantly reduce inequality secure broader solidarity and support um whatever the tensions they might also generate a caring state is therefore one that provides the conditions allowing for such tensions disagreements and ambivalences to emerge since yeah. this encourages deliberation and concerted action um this means fostering institutions norms and communities that are well resourced and thus best positioned to enable us to work through at least some of the tensions of routine caring interactions 
Consequently, state provision of care services is not enough without transforming its modes of delivery. So I think the bits we've mentioned, there's loads that you can unpack. So I hope that everyone listening takes a moment to maybe rewind and re-listen to the bit from Stuart Hall. Um, Was there any other kind of excerpts or text that you wanted to bring in in this moment that you think helped provide a theoretical grounding? Yeah, I think the 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 next text that I wanted to read is actually kind of directly relevant to that because I think that there's there's the question of well okay we want to get to that place right where we have the resources that we need to to care for each other to really support each other to really uh live full and fulfilling lives and I guess there's the question of well what needs to change globally in order to make that happen and I think Angela Davis, um, Our Prisons Obsolete, is obviously a real classic text. But what's really interesting about reading it, as I'm a little bit more of a mature abolitionist, or have come a little bit further in my um, journey as an abolitionist, is just how much she kind of preempted a lot of the conversations that we're having today. And so I'm just going to read this um, little bit out from near the end of the book. So she says, Creating agendas of decarceration and broadly casting the net of alternatives helps us to do the ideological work of pulling apart the conceptual link between crime and punishment. This more nuanced understanding of the social role of the punishment system requires us to give up our usual way of thinking about punishment as an inevitable consequence of crime. We would recognize that punishment does not follow from crime in the neat and logical sequence offered by discourses that insist on the justice of imprisonment. But rather punishment, primarily through imprisonment and sometimes death, is linked to the agendas of politicians, the profit drive of corporations, and media representations of crime. Imprisonment is associated with the racialization of those most likely to be punished. It is associated with their class, and as we've seen, gender structures, the punishment system as well. So if we insist that abolitionist alternatives trouble these relationships, that they strive to disarticulate crime and punishment, race and punishment, class and punishment, and gender and punishment, then our focus must not rest only on the prison system as an isolated institution, but must also be directed at all the social relations that support the permanence of the prison. So that for me, I mean, that's basically Angela Davis, you know, saying we need a revolution. (laughs) I I think, but I think that's, it's a really important point. And that's why our book is called Abolition Revolution. And Mm. it's often missing from these conversations around, well, what do we replace, um, carceral systems with or even the question of kind of like transformative justice or the question of care or the question of resource we can't we can only partially answer those questions under a capitalist system Mm. we can't care for each other for example if we're tired because we've got to work 12 hour shifts five times a day Mm. and five times a week and you know we can't Uh, have the resources that we need to survive if every few years it's austerity or a cost of living crisis. And, you know, you know, these aren't um, incidental or kind of, you know, peripheral questions. The question of what we do 
to fundamentally change the global economic system are absolutely central to questions of kind of care and transformative justice and and and, and resource and living differently. And so, you know, I'm not an expert in alternatives to kind of punitivity and harm reduction and transformative justice. I have some ideas and I've been part of some practices, both in my work and in activism. But what I do know and what abolition revolution makes an argument for is that without transforming all the social relationships that underpin harm and violence, whether they're political, economic, social, then we'll never fully get there. And so I guess I'll leave the kind of listeners with the final thought on that, which is, you know, we have to kind of move away from this passive space of thinking that this is all that there is to live for, you know, um, rotating Tory and and Labour governments or, you know, cost of living crisis, austerity, neoliberalism, walking down the street and not knowing whether you're going to get stopped in search. There has to be more to life than that. And we have to start believing that there's more to life than that. And we have to stop fighting for a life that's more than that. And I think that's what abolition revolution really tries to inspire. So inspiring. I love that. <laughs> I mean, no, I, but we need that, that image. Um, and that, as I say, I bring it back to this umbrella theme of emerging futures. Yeah. Um, the reason I think this collective have selected this theme this year is because precisely because there's many people now especially young people who are thinking those exact questions. We have seen and experienced so much hardship and there's just coming a turning point when we're like, well, why? Why do things have to be this way? Why does my life have to pan out this way? I don't want it to. Um, We need change. I need a better life for myself, for my friends, family and my own children one day. Yeah. So thank you so much for that image. And I, I really love that you brought that kind of um, that tying moment in because I really also want our listeners to think that and um, in the first episode too hopefully if you're listening you've listened to that we talk a lot about reimagining our futures and what it means to look within ourselves and think about the world around us um, and recognize that we're a part of a a collective um, a worldwide one and especially it's useful to sometimes bring it back to your own context think about the people who are around you that you see every day that you care about what do you want for you and for them to be different? Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for that. Yeah, no uh, worries. And I think just just one more thing is yeah. that sometimes we get a little bit, um, what's the word? We don't see ourselves as part of a broader historical process. So mm. what I mean by that is the fact that, you know, people will say, we had Black Lives Matter in 2020 and everyone, you know, put black squares in their profile pictures and then nothing changed and nothing happens and nothing is ever going to change. But what I want to draw people's attention to is the fact that without Black Lives Matter, there would have been no Kill the Bill. There would have been no Cop Watch. And in fact, without all the family campaigns that have fought for people who have been killed by the state, there would have been no Black Lives Matter. And before that, you know, without the work that happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s of building that black radical tradition, there would have been none of the family campaigns and none of the Black Lives Matter and no Kill the Bill. And I think sometimes we need to take ourselves out and zoom out a little bit and recognize that we're part of the process and that we can all contribute to that process, but that 
being part of that is is more important than ever. The world is moving towards barbarism or and we have to, you know, provide an alternative. It can't just be that we are, you know, hurtling towards war and catastrophe and and, and violence. We have to be the architects of, of that different hopeful future. Thank you once again for joining us on this episode. For further reading, you can look at Black Resistance to British Policing by Adam Elliott Cooper, Catching History on the Wing by A. Sivanandan, and that's spelled S-I-V-A-N-A-N-D-A-N, and of course, Abolition Revolution by Shanice McBean and Avia Day. You can also find Kemmer's Linktree on Instagram at Donald underscore surfaces. Thanks also to Taya for use of their track Momentary High on this episode as well. Thank you for listening to Amplify the Podcast, Emerging Futures. This series was produced by myself, Amy Parks, with special thanks to Marla Axon, Esme Lewis-Gartside, Sarisha Kumar, Courtney Youssef, Max Sanderson, Arjun Fitzroy, Jarja Muhammad, Carl Blackburn, and the Awards for All Fund from the National Lottery. If you'd like to find out more about the RISE Collective and support us to continue the work that we do, you can visit our website at www.therisecollective.org.uk or check us out on social media at The RISE Collective UK or on Twitter at RISE Amplify. We'll see you next time. Thank you.